More often than not, what men call chatter really does matter. It's about being a friend, having the time to listen. And you know what? It's what makes the world go round. While those two are in town, guess who's looking after their kids? That's right, a friend. It's good to talk. Right, I'll take it. Sorry, madam. Mrs. Jones reserved this by, by phone. phone. I'm here again with this Mrs. Jones. If you want the best of the bargains, now, phone first. Is this also reserved for Mrs. Jones? Uh, no, madam. Would you like it? No, thank you. Not good enough for Mrs. Jones. It's not good enough for me. Have you ever asked yourself the question? Can you really count on your broadband? Or does it slither along? Or at peak times, if things feel a little constricted. With full fiber broadband from EE, you get the peak time speeds you pay for. Count on EE full fiber broadband. That was a mashup of three famous television adverts. Two from BT, featuring Bob Hoskins and Maureen Lippman, and one from EE with Kevin Bacon. There will be more EE adverts in the future but there might not be any more BT ones. That's because BT, British Telecom, one of the best-known consumer brands in the UK for years, is being replaced. The company is rebranding most of its consumer products as EE, an upstart brand that didn't exist until 2010. This episode is about the man behind that story. I'm Graham Ruddick, and this is Business Leader, a podcast that takes a second look at big business stories. In this episode, we speak to Mark Alera, the chief executive of EE and BT's consumer business. It's no exaggeration to say that he has one of the biggest jobs in UK business. EE has 25 million customers, including many on regular monthly phone and broadband contracts. It also has more than 20,000 employees. Alera's job covers EE phones and broadband, but also broadband service provider Plusnet and TNT Sports, BT's joint venture in sports broadcasting with Warner Brothers Discovery. EE was created in 2010 as Everything Everywhere when Deutsche Telekom and Orange put their UK businesses together. BT then bought EE for £12.5 billion in 2016, but BT didn't always think so highly of the brand. It's relatively young EE, but it's it's over 10 years now. So, I mean, that time has has flown, but com- I guess compared to, to BT, it's a much younger brand. And it's been, I think, an, an amazing journey getting to this point. I mean, EE was, was acquired by... BT back in 2016 and I think at that time I think the plan of record um, I don't think I've ever said this to anyone outside of uh, this company but I think the plan plan of record at the time was ditch the EE brand ditch the EE team and and fold everything into to BT and get the synergies and go from there and you know not not only did I think that was the wrong decision I also I also for BT overall it was also quite a motivating thing to to try and change that decision <laughs> not least for the team and 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 the thousands of people that, that had come across with EE so you know, we had a rallying cry of eight quarters to really show that that EE is an amazing business and we turned around and, and made huge improvements in in service and brand and network and 
churn and revenue growth, employee engagement. Uh, we won the Sunday Times Best Companies to Work For Award. I mean, everywhere you look, there were just a fantastic set of metrics, which which culminated in in BT actually changing that decision, maintaining the E brand, and, and then folding the the BT consumer business together with EE uh, to create the consumer division that I run today. And about eighteen months ago, we've been working on a plan for for a while to really think about what the brand direction is for the future and what the business strategy is for, for the future for what is the biggest telecommunications company in, in, in the country, 25 million subscribers. I mean, it's an enormous business. And we have decided that for the future direction, single brand and E being that brand is, is the right decision for, for a number of reasons. So it's, a, it's an enormous decision to make and it's an enormous thing now to execute on that decision, which we've started a few months ago and things things so far going very well. Can I just take you back to 2016? Because yeah. um, it's worth saying here that obviously you were part of the EE team that, that came across. Yep. What was it like for you to then become part of BT? Because up until that point in your career, you, you had largely worked for effectively challenger brands or, or, or at the very least brands that were challenging sort of big players in those markets. So what was it then like being going from being E to becoming part of BT and a company that was very much the establishment? Yeah, it was it was certainly a bit of a shock to the system. Um, you know, I remember actually even at even at Sega many many years ago we we dealt with BT and we we'd often joke that BT stood for bring bring 20 or or bring 10 in terms of the number of people. You know, it's just an enormous organization and you'd be faced with a huge numbers of people the other side of the the table. And, and also in 2016, I was made CEO for the for the first time in my career as well. So I'd always had very senior roles uh, around various leadership tables, but this this was the first time that I was sort of thrust in the the number one seat with a pretty big first CEO job. So so much was going on for me personally at the time and and for the business. And as anyone, uh, I'm sure, listening to your show who's been through an integration of any sort, uh, either being acquired by or acquiring. Or bringing organisations together, I think the hardest thing to work through, manage through, and lead through is the cultural change and the, and the people side of things. I mean, it's relatively easy on paper to put synergies down and spreadsheets and various plans as to how you're going to make the business better, but to actually lead people through that change, I, I think is one of the hardest things to to do that. And I think particularly if you've been acquired. Because then you, you, it's often I think the mindset of the acquiring company that the the small company will, the smaller company will basically follow the lead of the large company, and and you know, most of the roles and the synergies will 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 be absorbed into that bigger company. And that's not always the case, but generally that's that's the case, and generally that's the feeling that the uh, the acquiring company and the team in the acquiring company have, which is we bought you, therefore we'll tell you what to do and actually I think the best thing any company can do in any situation is is be really open-minded in terms of what the other company and people and cultures and assets can bring and I think when I when I look now at BT Group and BT Group without mobile without EE I think it's almost an unthinkable place for the for the company to be I mean mobile is such a huge part of the telecommunications market it's it's where huge amount of the growth and the excitement and the differentiations coming it's a mobile world and becoming increasingly so so it was a it was a fascinating and busy time and I was learning 
on the job what it was like to be a CEO as well. What was your mentality at the time? Because you touched on the fact that yeah. BT wasn't sure what it might do with, with EE and its yeah. team. What, what were you thinking? Because a lot of people in that situation would be like, mission accomplished, was in a huge deal, mm. now time to move on to the next thing. But that wasn't how you were thinking. No, it wasn't. And, and I wasn't thinking that because having quite quickly experienced where the company what BT Group was at the time and, and what it needed to do, it was it was really obvious that it needed... Massive change, I think, in in the way it thought about customers, dealt with customers, the pace and energy that was needed in in the business. You know, it needed an overhaul. It's it's at the time, you know, when I when I picked up the responsibility, it's it's its churn was at record levels. So the levels that customers were leaving us was double the industry average. Complaints were uh, the highest in the industry. We were often winning wooden spoon awards in in the Daily Mail and publications like that for the worst customer service. I mean, it was on many metrics. Whilst it was a phenomenal company with great history and lots of assets, its its results were uh, not that great. And so I, I really felt that we could bring a lot to the company. And if we had half the chance to pick up the responsibility for many of those customer areas, I, I could I could see how we could make a difference, a real difference as a, as a team. And so my mindset was very much I had to establish myself and my credibility pretty quickly as a new CEO coming into a large organization that was challenging show the organization the benefit of the the company that we uh, that, that the BT had acquired and find a path to get on every metric when I think about the metrics that really matter how colleagues are feeling customers are feeling the communities we serve are feeling of course the financial metrics so investors and shareholders are feeling good about what, what we're doing colleague engagement I mean every every metric we had to get some very fast momentum there so we could really then start challenging and have a have a sense of a much louder voice around the table um, even though we were I suppose outnumbered both in terms of size and scale and 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 potentially that as I say that that mindset of being the acquired company. That point on credibility how how did you and and the rest of the the EE team establish that? I think ultimately through outcomes I mean it's you can you can talk a lot, and and a lot of people do a lot of talking in business. And uh, in the end, it's a it, it is like any 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 business really. It, it, it's on outcomes, and so that's why I come back to that mantra that I had with my team, which was I remember sitting down with them and saying, right, I think we've got about eight quarters maximum to uh, show how good we are and and change these metrics, and let's run as fast and as hard as we possibly can. And if we if we do that, I think we've got a chance of changing the 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 plan here so it was quite a galvanizing thing for a team because my my team was also a new team you know I was new in role mm. many of them had then come across with me and and many had been promoted and also in new roles at the time so they had I guess points to prove as well and and, and the pride and passion of um, what we'd built not being eroded away so quickly as, as you often see in many of these situations so it was a, it was a very galvanizing time for people to get behind you're talking obviously about huge numbers of people and, and huge numbers of customers here. I mean, 25 million plus customers. So, I mean, how do you move a juggernaut like that? <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, that's the. You know, it's one of the. It, it's one of the most rewarding things I have. I have in my role, I think, um, but also one of the hardest. We have around 20, 22, 23,000 employees all over the country, and they're a phenomenal team. And and the pride and passion they have wherever they are in in the country for what we're trying to do I think it gives me such energy every time I go out and see them 
Uh, it's like a, it's like an espresso shot of energy and passion and enthusiasm for what we're doing, and 25 million customers. I mean, it's so. You know, if we if we do the right thing or do the wrong thing, you can feel it at scale very very quickly. So I think in terms of mobilising a team of that scale, I, I work incredibly hard with my team on simplifying our business down to things that everyone can understand. You know, whether whether you've just joined, you've been here a long time, whether you're at a relatively junior level to a senior level, I always try and and explain our strategy and our plan in ways that anyone can understand. And spend a lot of time on it. I mean, we we will be talking about our plan and putting announcements in 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 context of our plan every day, every week, and reinforcing that as we and I and the team go out and about and speak to teams. Um, obviously, a lot of communication over video now, a lot of reinforcement on on social channels, even even external social channels are reaching our internal teams. That's really the the, the key purpose for for a lot of that. So it's having a very clear plan, I think, that everyone can get excited about and feel part of. And and we like to celebrate everyone's part in that. So it's not just celebrating a few individuals, but teams up and down the country. That generates a huge sense of pride and just a constant reinforcement that we're going in the right direction, that we've achieved the next milestone, and this is where we're going next, uh, which is, is a lot easier to say than do. Um, and it requires a huge amount of time and effort and, and, and resilience. But I think we do it pretty well. well. When was the decision taken to do the rebrand? Because I've heard you say before that mm. this is something that's been in the works for years and it took longer because of COVID and video. But yeah. when, when you made the decision, it, the, there's there's rebrands that people may think are gimmicky rebrands. But this is a rebrand where you've, you've said we're going to put E in the hands of consumers, not BT, one of previously mm. You know, the best known company names in in the, in the country. What what when you made that decision were the pros and cons in terms of doing it, and how much of a risk did you consider it was? Mm. Sorry, it's about three questions in one. There. No, that's okay. It's it's I mean it's, it's a good question, and um, obviously it took time. It's not something you can you can dream up in an afternoon and 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 go to a, a board and say this is what we're doing and and come out after ten minutes. I mean it's it took probably. I think two or three sessions at the board uh, explaining what we're trying to achieve and why we wanted to achieve it. And of course, part of the challenge there was it was in COVID times, you're doing that over teams and uh, that's not necessarily the most conducive environment to a great discussion, but we we made that work really well, I think. And a lot of thought went into. I mean, genuinely, we had we had three options on the on the table, and one one would would be the the plan we're on, which is rebrand to EE. The other would be rebrand uh, the division to BT, and and the third um, option would be forget either of those two and let's create a new brand and 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 do it that way. And they've all got pros and cons and varying levels of risk. I th- I think the key, obviously, the expense of a completely new brand, I, I think ruled that option out. When when you look at the if you've got two very strong, well known brands, I, I think it's a it's a hard call for anyone to give up on either of those. I think it's a different situation. If I think back to when we created uh, EE, I think both the T-Mobile and Orange brand brands were losing momentum and had done for some time. So we were not giving up a, a huge amount at, at that time because the momentum was against those brands. But uh, I think this is a different situation. And I think the biggest challenge for either brand is gaining credibility in, in the products and services that it's less well known for. So we're about EE's biggest challenge is being known and being credible for broadband which BT's been famous for 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 decades of course 
And that's why if, you, if you're in the UK, you'll see on many of our ads, we say EE Broadband powered by BT because we want to get that brand equity from BT ac- across to EE. And I think we'd have a similar challenge if we were doing it the other way around. The credibility that BT has in mobile, very little. Uh, and that would have been a, a very difficult challenge, I think. But we felt on balance when we look at MPS customer service, uh, the kind of audiences we're trying to grow with, the areas in the country where where we've got real opportunity. And, and ultimately, as I was saying before, it is a mobile world. It's a, it, it, it's a world where we've got, we're sitting here with watches and tablets and laptops and microphones and everything connected, but you're moving them around. Ultimately, the brand that has the credentials and the strength for that audience and the products and services and where the market's going. I mean, we're in the fortunate position here where we're, we're at the epicenter of devices, networks, technology, services, and we get to talk with all the biggest companies on the planet in terms of where they're going. We can we can get a glimpse into the future, and so for, for all those reasons, we felt the the brand decision is right. But ultimately, on these on these decisions, in the end, you've just got to make a decision and make it right. Uh, you could you could choose any path and 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 make it work. I believe we've chosen the right path. It's off to a good start, and and everything we're doing in our business now is geared to making it a big success for customers. Mark Alera's future plans for EE include offering a wide range of services to customers under the One Technology brand. This includes selling consumer electronics and gaming in EE's high street stores in a similar way to how it sells mobile phones. But EE has already been a vital part of the wider BT group, which as well as owning EE, also offers telecommunications services to businesses and is rolling out fibre broadband across the UK through OpenReach. In recent years, Alera has won admirers in the business world for managing to keep customers loyal to EE despite putting up the price of their phone, broadband or TV contracts. That has been crucial to BT's financial performance during a challenging economic period. So how did he do it? Well, the churn rate in our in our market, I, I guess, in any subscription business, is one of the most important things we need to focus on because that's the rate at which customers are leaving us. It's now at I think industry leading levels, and that's something that's taken us a, a lot of hard work to get there. Um, and it's 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 not one thing; it's it's many things. It's getting a service right, which is a big big piece of work, and and never done. But we've focused a huge amount on getting our service right when things go wrong. And trying to avoid things going wrong proactively and getting value for money right. Does does the customer feel that they're getting the right value for money? And our, our sort of mantra, really, the way we think about things, will never necessarily be the cheapest, but we always want to be the best. So if you are paying a pound more, two pound more or so to be with us, you will be getting a better network product and service experience. Uh, I, I think the sort of dynamic of price rises, I guess, in any market right now, if you were to talk to any any leader of any product category, the cost of their goods and services has been going up in this inflationary environment that we've seen. I, I, I think the the untold story or the story we try and tell in telco that, that never <laughs> quite cuts through in the headlines is, you know, I look at all of these categories and, and so many of them are in the sh- shrinkflation category. You know, we're all wondering, well, how is it that we go through this pack of digestives 15% quicker than we used to. It's because there's 15% less digesters in them for more money. And with Telco, with the price rises we're putting through, the customers getting and using 40 to 50% more data, more gigabytes 
on faster, better, more reliable networks with better service and, and capability across the industry overall. And then we think we're doing a really good job within our industry of uh, of getting that equation right. So it, it, they're never welcome. It's been a really challenging period over the last couple of years for, for, for all businesses. And in our sector, of course, we don't consume the basket of goods of CPI. When we, we've got semiconductors, energy, data growth, the devices that we, we use that we need to give our customers network equipment, they've been going up at a rate of inflation that's been higher than the, the basket goods of inflation. So unfortunately, we have had to pass some of those costs on. It's not something we generally like doing, but it has been necessary. But at least I can look any customer in the eye and say, you've been you've been able to use 50% more gigabytes and you're paying the lowest prices in Europe and you're getting faster and better, more reliable networks than ever before with better service as an industry overall and, and within that industry, I think we've done the best job. So I think that's a, a fair equation. Whereas I look at other products and services and, and, and think they're not necessarily serving customers with that mindset. I'm going to be slightly mischievous with the next question. <laughs> this is a business with an impressive CEO. It's just on a rebrand and the staff have been tupid over to EE Limited. Mm-hmm. In five years' time, is, is EE still part of BT? Well, I, I'm certainly not working on any plans for it for it not to be. I mean, I, I think we're an incredibly important part of, of BT Group. Um, BT Group's stronger with a really strong consumer division in it, which which we are. And um, as I said, there's no there's no plans for any change. The only thing we're focused on is is building an incredibly strong EE and consumer division, not not just for today, but for the next five ten years. When we think about the level of change coming in the market. And the level of change coming for customers, and we're so fortunate because we get to see it all in 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 our roles here, and we get to meet all of the different companies and and uh, all of the different individuals behind those companies and and how they're thinking, and there is a level of change in in this market because we're we're surrounded by technology, and technology is moving at such a pace, and and so this is all about getting ourselves fit for the next five to ten years, so we continue to thrive and. Uh, be a successful business and I fully anticipate that will be part of BT Group, absolutely. Mark Alera has now worked for BT for nearly a decade, but he seems to have been able to retain the mindset of being part of a challenger brand rather than being bogged down by the inevitable bureaucracies of being part of a larger company. However, when BT announced in 2023 that Philip Janssen would stand down as chief executive, Alera interviewed for the top job and didn't get it. I, I, I don't think anyone would describe me as being institutionalised. <laughs> um, no, I, try, I try and always have that challenger mindset, always, always challenging and changing what we're doing and why we're doing it. I think that's incredibly important in, a, in a leading a consumer business to always stay in touch and you're, you're only as good as your, your last day, really, because every day you've got to fight for the right for customers to, to want to choose us and stay with us. Uh, and we've been just been talking about the level of change that's coming, being very, very flexible and open to change, I think is incredibly important. I mean, I do remember, it's funny, I remember on the Friday of my, of my first week driving home, um, having been made the CEO, and I think we've made one or two pretty big decisions that week. And it never really hit me until my drive home, is just the fact that I was now making those decisions and there was no one really to call. And, and so, you know, that, those, those sort of all of a sudden going from, thinking this has gone quite well to, oh my God, have we made the right decisions? Have I made the right decisions? 
And the level of emotions you can go through, I think, as a, as a leader when you're put in those positions of responsibility. And I, I, there's so many books on leadership and management and all these kind of things, but not, no one really talks about the emotional turmoil you, you go through and, and the, the pressure and stress that that can put on you and in, in quite unexpected ways, I think. I think in particularly when you're also trying to deal with an integration as I was at the time and, and, and trying to build a, a new plan to get the best out of what we were trying to do, there was a lot going on. So I think I'm sure I could and should have done a few things differently. Inevitably, you learn a lot over the years. I mean, I was in a big leadership role when I was 26 at Sega. And if I think back to how I would have led then versus how, how I lead now, very, very different. I think, you know, I'd like to think I've still got the energy and the enthusiasm and the drive and the passion and the sort of winning mentality that I try to bring to what we do every day, but probably more more calm, more consensual, certainly more aware of, in, in a much more complex business, the different drivers to how one should think about making decisions and the impacts of those decisions rather than just getting on with them. Um, so I think I've, I've changed quite a lot. Who, who have you learned from? Which bosses have, have you taken lessons from? I think I, I've, I, I'm very lucky. I mean, I work for some amazing bosses in, in my time in the, in the video game industry and, and, and in telecoms. I've had proximity to people like Lee Cushing and, and Canning Fock when I worked at Hutchison. So, uh, you know, an incredible operators at a global scale in multiple businesses who think in 50-year, 100-year horizons almost, but also worry about what happened yesterday. I worked with Olaf at, um, and for Olaf at uh, EE and Philip Jansen most recently here, and Gavin Patterson. You know, I've worked for some, you know, big names and very inspiring people who, who've all been very different leaders. And so I've picked up great things, I think, from from all of them things that I'd also do differently for, uh, than them as well. But I, I think from any boss, as long as they're not a terrible boss and treating you badly and the team badly, which none of my bosses have done, um, you can pick up so much from them. And, and, and so they inform you. You, you, you know, I've got my own way of doing things and my own value set, but I've certainly learned a huge amount over the, over the last 20 years in particular with the people I've worked with. I've heard you recently saying that one of the things you believe in is turning the hierarchy upside down, turning yep. the pyramid upside down, yep. that actually, as a CEO, yep. you should be listening to the people on the shop floor, on the ground. Yep. I guess it's that, that's easier said than done in many ways, mm. because that that is a, there's, particularly in an organisation like this, there's a lot of people. How do you do that? How, mm. do you, how do you actually listen and make sure that you're taking constructive feedback and yep. not just not just being hit by the sort of wet paint phenomenon of turning up to places and everyone's rolled the red carpet out yeah. for you and, you and telling you what you think you want to hear, not what actually you need to hear. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a really important question because actually building on the last question, who do I learn from? I've worked for some amazing people, yes, and I meet some amazing, I meet the CEOs of all the big tech companies and learn a lot from them. But I, I would say I learn as much from getting out and about and, and whether it's in our stores or our contact centres, and I'm fortunate we've got, uh, many locations with amazing people spending a day there as, as I do I can learn as much about not just um, what's going on in the business right now but the, the ideas and thoughts and questions our colleagues have got because they are so passionate about the business we're in and the brand building that we're trying to do they put me under as much positive pressure and give me a, gives me a, a, as many ideas and inspiration as 
any CEO walking in here does in, in, in different ways. So I think the first thing you have to do, you have to, I remember that sort of wet paint thing. I remember once going to a, my first visit in BT actually, and it was engineered a bit that way. And it was, you will sit down with this person, you'll sit down with that person. Of course, they were putting me in front of the best possible people. And so whenever I go now, I just decide, I just choose. I say, I'll sit with him or her. And, and I think you've got to send a very important signal, which is we're here to listen. I think a lot of people turn up to these sites and sort of preach and then take a couple of questions and then run off. But my my philosophy is always, you know, I bring a notepad, my, my head of service or sales that normally will, will come with me on these visits will bring a notepad. And we just fill the notepads with things we could and should be doing to, to either help our colleagues or help our colleagues uh, serving customers and help customers. And we go away with a hundred actions on every visit because th- this job is so complex and it's never done. So you have to set the tone that you are listening and you have to send the message that you are following up on the things that are raised. And, and obviously we can't fix everything that, that comes up, but we, we relentlessly follow up and say that you told us this, this is what we've done about it. You've told us that this is what, what's coming next. We're working on this. And maybe we're not we're not we're not going to action those things, but thanks for your contribution. And I think after many months, because it takes time for people to, I think, trust you in the end, and, and particularly if they've had uh, you know many many bosses turn up and say the right thing but not do the right. You got to say and do the right thing. Uh, I think demonstrating that we do the right thing gives confidence, which means those teams are now very very comfortable just saying what they think, offering these ideas up, and. You know, I think just just simple things. You know, don't don't turn up in a big flash chauffeur driven car and go and eat in the canteen. And sit and talk with people. Talk to the receptionist. They they they've got as much view on the pulse and the mood in the organisation as as the person running the the site, for example. Talk to the taxi driver on your way in. I mean, just talk to everyone because you you can learn from everyone something. Uh, so I think that's that's they'd be some of the things that I do. And I think, you know, I'm benefited. I, I, I guess if you've been around a long time as well, you're you're seen as a familiar face, and therefore, uh, you know, after that familiarity also breeds a bit of, you know, lots of people feel like they know me, even if they don't know me. They see me on various videos and emails and all that kind of stuff. So that I think they feel like they can just come up to me and and, and talk to me, and I, I certainly try and give that impression to to everyone I meet. It's been well reported that you interviewed for the to be CEO. Mm-hmm. Is that? correct and and secondly did it then cross your mind after not getting it whether you wanted to stay uh i think i think it's well it's it is correct that um i was i was in the process um you can't always believe what you read in the in the papers as 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 you know but sometimes the rumors are are right um obviously it was it was a it was a role that i interviewed for and 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 working in this company as long as i've worked in i you know i can i can see the opportunity in the future for it and and in in whatever capacity I'm in uh, that's a slightly different capacity I thought I could really do something quite interesting but um, obviously the decisions made and I've chosen chosen Alison who I think is also going to be a great leader and I've known her well over many years she's she's obviously been on the board and worked closely with me and, and others in the team for some time and she knows Telco really well so you know I think she's going to do a great job you just got to move on sometimes, you know. Last, last year was a really difficult year for me personally. I lost my mum at the beginning of the year. Didn't get that role in the summer. But, you know, to be honest, 
you, know, you put these things in perspectives. When such major events happen to you, it's a, it's a job you went for, you didn't get. You know, the world keeps turning and life's got to go on. And, and, and we've got such a great plan and, and, and so many opportunities ahead of us doing what we're doing now. I think it's, 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 um, it's a distraction over very quickly and there's, there's just so much to do in terms of building the new EE and, and rebranding BT. And, and we've got a hell of a lot of work ahead of us. Before Mark Alera joined EE, he was involved in two big product launches in the UK. At just 26 years old, he led the launch of Sega's Dreamcast game console in the early 2000s. That launch started well, but the product failed, as we will explore. He then helped to launch 3 as a mobile phone service in the UK. That launch didn't go to plan, but the business is at least still going strong today. I had a great mentor who's sadly not with us now, Helen Alexander, um, who's, who's a phenomenal business leader, mentor for me. And I think she was mentoring me about, this was about 15 years ago, so not, not 30 years ago. And she, she, she said to me, you know, just stop, stop being in such a hurry. <laughs> and I was just very, you know, very, I suppose, quite competitive person. And, you know, was, I, I guess in your 20s as well, you, you're really trying to establish yourself in your career and your credentials. And I, I also think when you're, when you're part of something, if you're part of a launch, and, and not everyone gets to be part of these. I mean, you know, launches are really special things, launches of new brands or launches of new products. I've been really lucky. I, I've been part of three or four in my career. You get very emotionally attached to what you're launching. You know, it's more than it, it's a very different feeling than than when you come in and inherit something that someone else has launched. And and so the Dreamcast, as an example, a team we had there that that and also the team was built from scratch because Sega, like all video games companies, there's less volatility now in these cycles. But when when you go through a console end of life, I mean, they basically got rid of everybody cleared out all the stock in the warehouse, had a minimum number of people, half a dozen people in an, in an office, sort of waiting for the next thing to come along. And then they staffed up dramatically to to prepare for that. And and so we went from sort of six people to a few hundred very, very quickly, and then very, very fast paced, get ready for a big launch. And it was, even to this day, it was it, it is still the biggest grossing video games launch weekend of any it's it's still no console has sold more in that first weekend than than the dreamcast unfortunately <laughs> uh, we couldn't say the same about our fifth weekend or the 10th weekend but we had an it was a massive launch but i guess it was fast industry i was young point to prove and we were up against we were up against you know nintendo we didn't like them and we were up against sony and we, you know microsoft was coming with xbox so we felt real a real sense of burning energy to to do everything we could but I was very young so I get I, I guess I had I had the ability to work what felt like 24 7 every day at a thousand miles an hour it's a very fast-paced me well, I think I said to you that we could do a whole podcast episode on the Dreamcast yeah. so I want yeah. to ask one yeah. question about it that may take up an episode but yeah you look back now and that people regard that console as ahead of its time and a really high quality console yeah. and yeah. you look at some of the technology it had like downloadable content built-in yeah. modem yeah. which seemed like incredible now that that was but it was the first of its kind it was ahead of its time in many ways it was. and it had great games crazy taxi amongst many others yeah. but yeah. but ultimately it did lose to sony and yeah. microsoft so yeah. why why was that do you think 
Oh, crikey. I mean, this is a podcast in itself, yeah. and there's there's been a couple that have sort of looked at the at this. But I, I think first thing is it, being ahead of its time. Being ahead of your time is is not always a good thing. I mean, it's a you know good example. I mean, you know, you even look at Apple, for example. And I think they're very, very famous for being not necessarily first, but when they come, they they come better. And in a way, it's it's sort of full circle because it was an online games console that could do all of those things you say: download, upload games, and with Choo Choo Rocket and all this all this stuff. But there was no network to actually download or upload the games, and so I feel like I've gone full circle now. I'm I, I'm in a role where I, I I can help create the network that can help gamers and gaming um, game more effectively, because the Dreamcast was was basically five to ten years ahead of its time in in its thinking. I mean, Sega were phenomenal in in terms of the way they thought about the future. I think the biggest things that you know, if you look at Sony, what did they do brilliantly? They opened up their API developer kits and democratized it. And and even to this day, you know, Nintendo still pretty closed. Sega was was pretty closed, and was very uh, Japanese centric, quite hardcore gaming centric. Crazy Taxi, brilliant game, but it only appeals to a certain number of people. Whereas Sony were the ones courting EA and getting FIFA first and all this kind of stuff. So they were very smart at democratizing, opening up, um, taking a, a, a sort of international perspective as to what the big games were going were to be, long-term view on pricing. You know, they were often more aggressive on pricing and and had that long-term view and many other reasons too. But, um, you know, it could have all been very different, but it wasn't. It was a fascinating time to be part of Sega though. When you then, because after Sega, you then go on to three and you do another launch. Yeah. What was that like? Because that obviously turns out to be a successful launch. What were the sort of... <laughs> <laughs> I'd say maybe the, the launch less successful, yeah. actually. So that's, like, that was that was sort of uh, another one of... I think the promise... So this was at the birth of 3G, and we yeah. were the first to bring 3G. And 3G had these, you know, as you know, these these licenses that everyone spent... I mean, Hutchison spent $5 billion. Everyone spent about $5 billion on a piece of paper that said, I can now launch these, these new services. And, and the promise was... All of the stuff that we enjoy today and take for granted, from video calls to um, watching videos to to um, downloading music and all of these kind of things. And actually, at the time, Three was the first provider to bring a lot of these products and services to market. But unfortunately, on devices that were really quite big and quite ugly, if anyone remembers, we had one device that was so ugly we called it the George Foreman Grill. It was about that size and about that form factor, um, and a network that was nowhere near the level of coverage and reliability that we we enjoy today in 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 our in our daily lives so that was i think a good example of um a huge amount of focus huge investment and a, and a launch too early with a, an overpromising on technology that wasn't quite there and it took many years to get there and um you know that business today is about a 10 10 million or so uh, 10, 12 million subscriber business, reasonably successful. I think when I left, it was about eight, eight million. Um, so we we sort of got it to a reasonable level of scale, but it had a very, very troublesome first few years. So then you know, went to went to what was everything everywhere, and then we launched EE, which was another massive but challenging and fast paced launch as well. So you know maybe one of my jobs in future, I might, I might have a slightly, opt for a slightly easier challenge, <laughs> but <laughs> but I seem to, I love these challenges. I love launches. I love, I love these situations of, of bringing new products and services to market. It's, it's a, it's a very energizing thing. Growing up in Yorkshire, I mean, was business part of your life? I mean, how, how did, how do you end up being 
leading a product launch in Europe at 26 years old? Um, well, I, it, I, I sort of, I didn't really grow up. I might have been born in Yorkshire, but I, um, I've sort of moved around quite a bit. My dad was in the RAF, so we we bounced around various Air Force bases for a while, settled settled down south at a relatively young age, I think maybe five or six years old. And I don't, I, I, I was lucky enough to have bri- a brilliant work experience at Olivetti in Italy and, and spent some good time there. And, and they were another organisation that, that had ideas and innovation, again, probably ahead of its time. Uh, and unfortunately, that organisation is a good example of you can have all the right ideas and the right design, but if you haven't got processes and execution capability in place, things things rapidly f- fall apart. But it gave me it gave me the energy and excitement of technology and media. We were working on the first computers that could play music and play games and do all this amazing stuff when I was 19, 20 years old. Uh, so I think that gave me the hunger for working in technology and working with products and services with technology that could do great things for customers. And that's when I had the opportunity to start my career very early on, sort of in, in sales um, and then ultimately into buying in, a, in, a, in an entertainment um, wholesaler that worked with games and music and books and film. It was a sort of dream start to work, really, and, and then ended up moving to Sega from there. So I, I, I never really had any idea of what I wanted to do until I started doing work experience. And that, that just shows you the power and impact that great work experience can have on someone, I guess. Because I think the world of work is just such an esoteric, difficult concept to get your head around. If I think of you know, my, my teenage children, it's really hard for them to think about what work is and what they're going to do and uh, what kind of products and services and sectors they're, they're going to be in until you start experiencing it. And then you either experience it and it's not for you or you experience something great that I did and that, that then drives you to, to stay in, in, that, in that world and learn more about it and, and be, be more part of it. You've been listening to Business Leader with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. For more business news and analysis, you can sign up to our newsletter, Off to Lunch, where you'll get news and analysis throughout the week, as well as get updates when our new podcast episodes go live. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com.